It's actually repression of our knowledge of our mortality that is at the root of what used to be called neurosis. And Life offers up and has potential in every moment. And death is the end of that potential. There's nothing more, more total. I am of the view that mere quantity is not enough. Welcome to How to Be an Adult, a podcast created by the practitioners at the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada. This is a show for people just like you who've inadvertently become adults and don't know what to do about it. I'm Luke Chow. And I'm Pascal Langdale. And whether you're 18 or 80, this is the trail guide to life that your parents didn't give you when you finally reach the age of majority. Now, we publicize these perspectives and these ideas in order to democratize the kind of self-assurance, the sense of autonomy, and uh, perhaps also the sense of direction as well uh, that we believe will help you to be an adult in today's world. Today we're going to talk about perhaps the greatest cause of anxiety, whether we're aware of it or not, in most people's lives. And in prior episodes we've claimed that when you reach adulthood, it's the final stage. Once an adult, you're forever an adult. But today we are actually going to talk about what is beyond adulthood, which is death. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so what's nice is you say we talk about death, and then there's this silence, right? And that, in some ways, is indicative of our attitude towards it. It's a sort of a taboo subject that somebody lays down the word death, and suddenly everybody goes. And there has been scholarly work done on the subject. Mm. Ernest Becker, who was Canadian, or at least spent part of his life in Canada. He wrote a book which won the Pulitzer in, I think, 1974 called The Denial of Death. And he iterates upon Freud's hypothesis, which is that repressed sexuality is what causes neurosis or anxiety, by claiming that it's actually repression of our knowledge of our mortality that is at the root of what used to be called neurosis and which we now call anxiety. And it's a fascinating book, which I read at the start of the pandemic, and it's definitely informed my views of how I might be able to best help people deal with anxieties of elevators, um, fear of flying, fear of the unknown, fear of even social situations like public speaking, because it seems like once someone is able to accept their mortality, once they're looking at it and they're believing in it and they're not trying to escape from it and they're not trying to repress it, it seems like there's a trickle-down effect to what you might say are lower-level anxieties than the fear of death. And do you think this is something more of a, a development from the results of living in a modern society where we have antibiotics, we have incredible technological advances, uh, where we get to actually be scared of elevators because they exist? Because if I think of people 200, 300, 400 years ago, then death was ever present. You you would have children. You would expect not all of them would uh, would survive, and your own longevity was permanently in doubt from anything from an infected cut to you know. Well, part of Becker's hypothesis is that human beings have created works of art, and we've created religions and monuments like the pyramids, for example, to manage our terror around our knowledge of our own mortality. So it's not just in recent years we have elevators. It's also in the time of the ancient Egyptians, where, at least according to the hypothesis, we have to imagine what's beyond this life, 
in order to be able to cope with our seemingly uniquely human ability to comprehend death. To appreciate death. Although I do think possibly the Egyptians could have done with elevators. Although there's probably somebody out there that will prove that they invented the elevator in the first place. Probably. (laughs) Um, So... I know that between you and I, we're very familiar with the Latin term, memento mori. Mm -hmm. So can you explain a little bit about your take on it, first of all? Well, the term translates, I believe, Mm -hmm. to, you know, remember death, remember that you will die. What it means is that a path to more happiness and peace is to confront the inevitable and to accept it as frankly and as quickly as you can. In other words, if repression of our knowledge of death and dying causes us to be anxious, then acceptance of our knowledge of death and dying is a path to being liberated from such fears. There are cultures other than the Greeks who practice this kind of philosophy of remembering death and dying. So in at least some Buddhist sects, Mm -hmm. they have the practice of corpse meditation, where, you know, rather than imagining you're in a peaceful rainforest with waterfalls and birds, you imagine your own body as putrid and decaying, because honestly, on a long enough timeline, who isn't putrid and decaying? But when you're able to meditate upon it and then to perceive it and to imagine and to feel it and to be at peace with it, then who cares if the elevator could get stuck for five minutes before you're rescued, right? (laughs) And if you, you know, if you die in a plane crash, then you still should have been on the plane so you can take your vacation because like, you know, most likely you wouldn't have died in in a plane crash. I've got a story about that, which is um, I used to do a lot of commercials and so I'd I'd fly all around the world. And I think think one of the first commercials I did was in Nepal. It was for Banco Posta, right? And um, so what I'd do is I'd do a job and I would stay for longer in whatever country I was filming in to explore the country. And so there I was, as in, in Nepal, I thought, right, Everest. I've always wanted to see Everest, always wanted to to hike up as far as I possibly could. <laughs> so we take an airplane and the first airplane is a tiny little airplane. And before we get on, we hear that the weather's quite choppy, should we say. There's a lot of wind, and it's been delayed and delayed and delayed. It's delayed for like eight hours. I'm thinking, well, this is a good sign. They're looking after us. That's, you know, it's a good sign. They're not going to fly because it's it's too dangerous, you know. And uh, then eventually we all get on the plane. Then the engines start, and then they stop the plane because one of the engines isn't working. So we all get off of that plane. I go, oh, that's good. They're all looking after us. It's okay. <laughs> They're perfectly safe. So then we come to the next plane, and then we set off, right? So fine. So then we go, and uh, we're flying for some time, and it's fine. But then we hit some turbulence. And I've never experienced turbulence like this before in my life. People start crying. People mm-hmm. are panicking, you know. And at one point, the, the aircraft drops very, very suddenly. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a, a girl at the front who I see in zero gravity fly up into the air. I can see underneath her, I can see the pilot. And it was extraordinary because I looked out the window, and I could see Everest from the window. It's glowing, you know. I remember thinking, at least I got to see Everest. I thought, if I die now, that's okay. At least it's a long-held dream that I wanted to be close to, close to, to, to seeing Everest. And so we landed and we came out, we you know, kissed the ground and it was all, you know, all celebrations. On the flight back, I was in an Airbus 380 or whatever it was, on some Swiss airline thing, and the slightest bump, I was <laughs> like this. Because that acquiescence that was easier in the moment 
suddenly I was alive, and then I was very, very cognizant of my mortality. <laughs> yeah, well, near-death experiences. So I'm mm. going to call that a near-death okay. experience. I don't know how close you were to actually, you know, hitting the ground, but let's call it a near-death experience. They kind of have a way of giving people a whole new perspective, both on the meaning of their life as well as the, the, the okayness of the fact that one day they're going to die. Yes, and perhaps the reminder that you are perhaps able to no longer exist, easier yes. than perhaps you think. The closest thing I've ever had to a near-death experience was I tried to kill myself mm-hmm. about 12 years ago. Yeah, I can describe a marked difference between me before that near-death experience and me after the near-death experience, where every day and every year I live these days, I very much feel like these are extra bonus years of my Mm. life, where it doesn't matter so much if, like, you know, I lose money in the stock market. It doesn't matter so much if I put out a podcast and people hate what I've put out on the internet, because I'm still alive, right? So I guess that experience for me kind of unrepressed my, mm-hmm. my knowledge of my mortality. And now I'm, I'm on the better side of things mm-hmm. where if I do die tomorrow, at least it's not I'm dying at the age of 28 or whatever it was. At least I've, I've lived my life. I've lived past, you know, the age of Jesus and Kurt Cobain and Joplin <laughs> and Hendrix. At, at least I've done some things with my life since then. Mm-hmm. And I am going to die one day. But that doesn't obliviate everything I've been doing during all the days when I am still alive. Hmm. And perhaps also, as you say, you've, you, know, you have that sense of every year being a bonus. Perhaps sometimes when you face those moments, it's actually even the smallest things can be the potential for a joy in life. You know, I, I know there's somebody who felt like they were at the end of their road and was contemplating suicide. And... And uh, they bought some tangerines from the local store. And they just absentmindedly started peeling one. And he, he popped the, the, um, the tangerine or satsuma water in. And the explosion of taste woke him up. And he, he, remember, he, said, he says, and I remember thinking, well, at least there's this. And that was like the yeah. smallest. And it was the reminder that actually life, life offers up and has potential in every moment. And death is the end of that potential. There's nothing more, more total mm-hmm. for the denial of life and death. Obviously, it's a, it's a truism. But just as, for instance, if you, if you have somebody close to you that dies, there's something extraordinarily profound about that absence, which is a marked difference in quality to somebody leaving the country or mm-hmm. uh, somebody who never wants to talk to you again and ghosts you and, and disappears. Mm-hmm. The knowledge of actual death is so, so profound that I think that it's equally balanced, I think, by the offering that life has, I suppose. I think that what you shared is a good segue into how then do we cope with our knowledge of death and the, the profound knowledge that once someone's gone, they mm-hmm. are gone, period. Most of us are, are going to live enough years that we're going to see other people die before us before then we have to cope with our own mortality. So let's start with how do we cope with the deaths of others. My most recent experience is I I have had a very beloved cat named Robot. Those of our listeners who have seen my YouTube channel or TikTok channel, (laughs) they've seen Robot. He's pinned up at the top there. And he was the sweetest animal and he got me through the pandemic. I've had him since he was six months old. 
And he was the most consistent source of love and warmth in my life for the 11 years that I had him. And toward the end of his life, I was taking him to the vet because there was something wrong with him, but they never thought it was cancer. Christmas Day last year, he collapsed. Within a few hours, I had to drive up to out of town to take him to the closest emergency vet that was taking new patients. And then Boxing Day, I made the decision to put him down. And I was sobbing. And mm. the one thing I, I kept thinking was even a cat could do it in the sense of being such a consistent source mm -hmm. of warmth and love and affection. And even just seeing me, not judging me, not letting their own wishes or desires for me get in the way of seeing me. But my cat, I believed, could actually see me as I was and not just as like a food source or something. Yeah. Obviously, I was going through this personal experience of having to cope with, with loss and over the holidays. Here's what got me through it. And I've started to advise my clients of this too. It is a disservice to those we've lost if we remember only the final page in the story of their lives. Right. So I, I had Robot when he was six months old. That's when I first held him in my hands. And then I brought him in, into where I was living at the time. And then I did my best to cat-proof the place. And I had to like clean up after him when he threw up and everything for, for 11 whole years. And when I remember the, the 11 years of his life where, where, where we did that kind of thing and we had shared memories and he was that constant presence in my life, then yes, it didn't end so well, but it, it would be such a disservice to, to the animal if I only just thought about, you know, driving up to, to Newmarket on Christmas Day and, you know, looking at possibly a $20,000 surgery bill to remove the tumor. I did everything I, I could to place that, not to deny it, but to place it in the context of the entire story of his life. And then I remembered that whatever he thought of me, while he was still on the planet, is still valid. Whatever views he had when he saw me so clearly coming back from work every day, it's still the truth about me, even when he's no longer present. It's not like his views of me die with him. It's not mm -hmm. like the reality about me that he brought my attention to dies with him. It's the reality about me that he brought my attention to is still there even when he's gone. And that's the lasting impact he made on me. Now, most of us, if everything happens in the right order, are going to mourn our parents so that they don't have to go through the pain of having to mourn us. Mm -hmm. On the decades-long timeline of having been raised by them and having them put their values into you, having them show you how to ride a bike and having them show you, well, he, he, here's how you cook this dish. All of this is going to outlast their time on the planet. And none of this, none of the memories, none of the values, none of that dies with the person. You know, in, in my own personal life, I know that probably I'm going to die before the younger people I know will, but I hope that I will have made an impact that outlasts me. So my mother died in 97 from, from a reasonably sudden well, three-year illness. It's funny because for years afterwards, I couldn't really picture what it was like before she was sick because the period of sickness was so dominating. Obviously, it's, it's and for kids as well, but for anybody, it's, it's like the sharpest of memories, the most, some of them are the most persistent, even if it's the memory of driving to the hospital and looking out the window or something. You know, that's, that's what somebody else remembers. In the Harry Potter books, bear with me. So in the Harry Potter books, there's this incredible bit where... Harry Potter has witnessed death at the end of the previous book. And he, off he goes to school at the beginning of the next book. And 
up till that point, they've been able to get into horseless carriages that pull them up to the gates of the school from the station. No horses, just these carriages, right? But this time when he goes, he sees these horses, these dark black horses, and he's astonished. He's quite scared by them. And then I think it's Luna Lovegood turns around and says, you see them, don't you? And he says, what, what, what do you mean? He says, you see the horses. He says, yeah, yes, I do. What, what are they? I don't understand. She says, well, because you've seen death. And Luna had also seen the death, I think, of her mother. And it's, when I read that, I was like, that's just so brilliant in the sense that those who do lose somebody close to them, particularly when they're young, it, it really alters your understanding of the world because you can, you can live under the illusion, this is, goes back to Mentomore as well, you can live under the illusion that somehow you're going to get away with it, that somehow if you just sort of go, la, 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 it's not going to touch you. And yet it will, and it does. And as the years pass, actually I've, I remember more and more about what she was like in the years preceding and when I was much younger, and that over time that, that focus on the illness, on the sharp pain of the illness, has dissipated somewhat. And I feel like there are many aspects of my personality which I still get to thank her for, and that I am now giving to my kids as well. To me, that's an extraordinary legacy. And if you think about it for a moment, if you can manage to deliver those good memories, those good perspectives, those good feelings between one generation and the other, that means that whatever it is good that my mum did, that I can pass on to my kids, might echo down for another six, seven generations. Death is not the end of somebody in the slightest. It's, it's the end of the house they were living in. But the memories of the house don't disappear. Well, th there's a saying, and I've heard it attributed to a number of people. I think it's Hemingway and Banksy. Mm -hmm. The saying is that th they say you die twice. The first time when your body perishes, and the second time when someone says your name for the last time. So that this is why I say that someone like Hemingway and Banksy are going to outlive their physical presence. I feel like even in the limited amount of work that I do, like I'm not really like famous, but like I, I do believe I've made an impact over my many years of doing what I can do to change people's lives. Even if I like get hit by a truck tomorrow, I will have made a lasting impact, at least among my clientele, because sometimes I was the first person to say that your self-love is valid. Although I can see very clearly that there's a clear line for you uh, between your daily job and manifesting change in other people's lives, right? So it's actually quite a clear uh, line. For some people, it's not quite so clear. But some people, you know, they don't get the, the benefits of that from their work. So in some ways, I, I look at that and think, well, yes, and it is also true that those moments that you spend with your family, with your friends, yes, with your co-workers, that just as that there's infinite possibility for turning anything into a source of joy, there is also infinite possibility to be mindful and to actually appreciate what is and what is now, because at any point it can go. And, and that means that other people as well, it's not just, you know, remember you will die is the memento mori, but in, implicit in that is that actually, remember, other people will die as well. It's not that it's remember death, I think, is a better translation of the spirit of it. One thing I say to almost all of my clients is that you are clearly 
a living human being. You are among the living. The flip side to remember death is that currently, in the present day, in the material world, you have the spark of life. And beyond that, when you are perceiving the full, complete extent of it, you can see that you're 100% alive. Those of us who kind of slog through our days feeling half alive are actually completely alive, but they've gotten distracted from parts of it. And even in this very second, if anybody's listening to this right now, I invite you just for a moment, pause the podcast so you don't have, have us yattering away, and just take a moment to focus on your breathing, on the sense of your blood coursing through your veins, your heart pumping, your lungs breathing fresh air in and, and getting rid of the air that you don't want. And just take a, a moment to register just how alive you are. And because this is available at any point in your day. And in some ways, it's another one of those panaceas, for, for want of a better, better, better word. Sometimes people feel like when they're 100% alive, they're manic, they're deluded, mm. their feet are not on the ground. But that's actually the clear perception of your current state. Even if feeling half alive or feeling half dead, even if it feels like the norm, it's not actually a, your, your current state. And even your dog or cat can see that. There's also an equation that is often made about, because if you say you're, you're intrinsically alive, period, foundational, that's it. And then you go, well, okay. All right, so are there occasions when it is apt and right to even pursue or to wish for death? And th th let me unpack this a little bit more, because that's not what I'm saying is the case. I'm saying that a realist or perhaps a utilitarian would say, well, okay, what if you lost your sense of sight, smell, taste, hearing? What if you were totally paralyzed, that you could not be part of a social community? Uh, people are going to have to look after you. Mm -hmm. My argument would be there is still life. Whilst you are breathing, whilst there is life inside you, this is the difference between you and a rock, mm -hmm. right? However, there's, there's also, there, uh, equally, there would be people say, well, okay, there is a point at which it's okay to pursue death. I mean, it's, it's not like um, the, the Stoics uh, were particularly shy of killing themselves. You know, uh, they, they saw it as having a role, you know, that, that, uh, that discretion. So, yeah, what do you think about the, the balance between the quality of life and its continuance, shall we say? Well, I definitely disagree with the view that the more quantity of life a person has, the better it is, because we don't even treat our pet animals like this. Mm. If we have an animal that's suffering, we want to alleviate their suffering, and we do factor in quality of life, not just merely quantity of life. We're talking about our pet cat or our dog. Mm -hmm. Like I would have paid for robot surgery, mm -hmm. except they told me he's probably going to die on the operating table because it's that hard to operate mm -hmm. on. So I figured that on the balance of you know probabilities, let's give him a good death. So I was there. You know, I don't know what everyone else was thinking when they heard me sobbing through the door. I'm sure they heard it before. But you know, so I was holding his paw. In those last moments, because I took the time to kind of like spend another hour or two with him, there was something he gave to me at the very end. While I was sobbing, right, it's like he forgot his pain for a moment. He forgot himself. And he looked up at me with only concern for me. Mm. And, you know, I had to make a decision at some point, you know, to call the vet in to, to complete the procedure. But he was able to give me that before he left and that definitely has made an impact you know i i did my best to kind of you know hold his paw act like everything's all right the vet told me that sometimes owners leave the room 
but it's it's I think it's an underestimation of oneself to feel like they can't handle their presence at their pet's passing. Mm-hmm. I think everyone is capable of it, and those who think they can't are underestimating themselves. And it is worthwhile. Difficult emotions are not necessarily in themselves something to be avoided, which is why we're talking about you know confronting death, looking at it, understanding it is going to happen. Difficult emotions are going to come up, but it's when you're able to sit with the emotions and, and feel them that you then come to the other side of acceptance. Mm-hmm. So for humans, I am going to put forth a claim that I think Einstein said it's tasteless to unnecessarily prolong life. Mm-hmm. I am of the view that mere quantity is not enough and that quality of life really does matter, mm-hmm. that I'd rather have a lot of quality of life mm-hmm. than just merely a lot of quantity of life. I know that, that when my mum got sick, there were members of her family and people who knew her who refused to see her because it, it was too... They knew she was dying and they simply were not willing to sit in that discomfort. I remember thinking as a kid, thinking, that's so weird. And that's what your story just now just put me in mind of. Right at the very last second, your cat provided an immense service to you and to your uh, life ahead by doing that, right? And man, it can be hard. I mean, uh, you know, (laughs) yeah, boy, it can be hard. But I suppose the good death is the one that, uh, that shows how it can be done with acquiescence and maintaining that relationship to the love of life and the love of people living or the lo- there's something in there there's something about that and yet and, and yes animals do it and uh, i remember my, my grandmother used to have this thing where she used to sort of wiggle my finger like this when i was a kid and she had had a stroke and she was in this awful hospital in barnet and i kept i couldn't actually i was i was much younger at that point and i, I couldn't fathom what was going to happen. I said, oh, you're going to get up and you're going to be doing weights by the end of the week, kind of thing, joking, joking, and tasteless jokes and people looking at each other, so going, mm, it's not going to happen. And she reached out her hand. She couldn't open her eyes, but she just grabbed my finger and wiggled it in this, in the probably the only thing that she could have done to say, yeah, I, I see you. I hear you. I'm glad you're here and hi. You know, it was... And yeah, and so I look at that and think, that's that was a pretty good death. I have... I, I, I often think of this, actually. I sort of think, well... What do you have to do to prepare yourself to be the kind of person that can face your own sickness and death with equanimity? What kind of person do you need to be to acquiesce to that and not rage, rage against the dying of the light? Now, Dylan Thomas's uh, poem is brilliant because we all feel that almost entitled rage. At how dare life be taken away from me? Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And yet I would say... No, don't. <laughs> you know, uh, rage, rage with a passion for life and accept that you're going to die. Something else, something else I advise my clients of, and this will be true in most of their cases, it's that if they're 25, if they're 35, if they're 45 even, they don't, I mean, unless they have knowledge otherwise, they don't actually have to prepare to die tomorrow. Hmm. Now, if someone's 75, if someone's 85, if they're lucky enough to have reached that age, then they're going to be prepared mentally and emotionally to be thinking about death, possibly tomorrow. You don't really have to prepare, I guess, 
to be dead. I mean, obviously, there is memento mori. There mm-hmm. is the corpse meditation. There is benefit to this. But at the same time, I would suggest it's better preparation for tomorrow to prepare to be living, to mm-hmm. prepare to live another day and to live it well and to live it excellently. And then if in the future you get some diagnosis or if in the future you're just old, then you know, when you prepare for death at that point, it's not a tragedy. If after a long enough, adventurous enough, well-lived enough life, then you kick the bucket. Mm-hmm. So to answer the question of how how do we kind of die an excellent death or how do we face the inevitable with dignity, I would say that even if you don't have an answer to how you're going to do it, you're probably going to have a long enough timeline to figure that bit out. I mean, if there's like no diagnosis and you die tomorrow, you don't really have to be prepared because it's, you know, <laughs> it's the truck bearing down on you or, or, or whatever. Although, I, although perhaps it's, there's, perhaps the answer is not to treat death as different in the sense that if you, if the answer to a fear of death or if the answer to who do you become in order to face death well, in order to do death well, perhaps you've got to do life well. Perhaps that's your job, in fact, is that those same skills that you develop to do life well, those same skills that you use that stop you from uh, worrying about things that you can't control, stop you from uh, holding on to baggage of the past and therefore raging at at the lost or missed opportunities, you know. All those sorts of things are, are things that we have to deal with in everyday life. And if you do those well, perhaps you'll be better able to cope with the diagnosis when it comes. Absolutely. We're all going to die anyway, right? That's a reality. At some point, at some age, (laughs) we're all going to face the inevitable. I I mean, like, even if there's, like, this immortality medication or whatever, eventually, like, global warming is going to kill you. Or the heat death of the universe is going to kill you. So so we're all going to die eventually. And whether we worry about it or not... Hmm. Most of us are going to reach something resembling old age before we die. Which in itself, old age is going to be something that, again, if you've equipped yourself in life to, to acquiesce and self-love and, yeah. and all those, then you'll do getting old better, <laughs> perhaps. You know. So the, the choice to make is, are you going to become an old person anyway, and you've not gone to Japan and you've not written that book, and you've not learned how to play the ukulele. Are you going to become an old person who's out of fear or inhibition or anything else? You've not done all of that. Or are you going to become old anyway, and you have done all of those things? Because those of us who remain among the living, we have the ability, on the whatever the timeline of our futures are, to then do the things such that when we're facing the inevitable, it's not a tragedy if you've lived a full, rich, good life and then you kick the bucket anyway. Which also goes back to a previous episode where we discussed values and living according to those values. Because perhaps your values are not to go to Japan. There could be any of the, multi, the, the multitude of values that there are. But they can also include... Uh, looking back, I mean, as, as our pre- some previous generations didn't say, yes, I managed to bring up a family, full stop. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's a, that can be a, an extraordinary accomplishment in and of itself, and it may be enough for somebody to look back on and be proud about. Not yeah. So So the uh, I suppose what I'm saying is that if you look back and you've done things that aligned with your values 
and you did the best you could to live by them and make the most of them, then that's a life well lived, and perhaps that's given you the skills to be able to face death well. While we remain among the living, and we also know that at some point we're going to face the inevitable, it is sometimes useful to make decisions through a lens of, are you going to regret this or not regret this when you're on your deathbed, hmm. right? So there are going to be some things we're afraid to do and which we're not even going to care about on our deathbed. And there are going to be some other things where regardless of how that trip to Japan goes, we are not going to regret having gone on that trip on our deathbed. So if you kind of look at the long timeline of your life and ultimately what's really going to matter, that is a useful lens for deciding how you're going to live between now and that future date. Thank you so much for listening, and all the way to the end. I know the subject matter today is not as lighthearted as some other episodes, but lightheartedness, I would suggest, follows from being able to handle the heavy stuff in life. Pascal and I are practical philosophers, in a way, at the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis. We're hypnotherapists, but what we do for our clients is we instill these kinds of views and perspectives in them so that they could benefit from our thought. If you want to connect with us, go to www.morphisclinic.com and ask my team for a free consultation. If you have enjoyed uh, or found any of the things that we've spoken about today have resonated with you, then please uh, subscribe to us on YouTube at Morpheus Hypnosis or anywhere you get your podcasts at uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify and so on. We'll be there and we look forward to sharing with you our next subject matter, which will be on masculinity. Healthy masculinity. Uh, go ahead and uh, follow us. You'll be notified of our next episode.